You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and consider leaving us a five-star review so that other listeners can find us. Coming up next on SpyCast. We had an intelligence intervention which um, stopped a car and um, made some arrests and seized an improvised mortar. And what was, I guess, most significant about this, it was very close proximity to the border. This mortar was of a new type that we hadn't seen before. This week is the third instalment of our five-week-long Spy Chief series. It started off with former CIA Director David Petraeus. The second week featured former Director General of Kenya's National Intelligence Service, Wilson Boynette. And we will continue next week with former number two of India's research and analysis wing, Vapala Balakandran, before closing out with the first woman to be the head of a US intelligence agency, Tish Long. This week's guest is Michael McElgun. He oversees the major intelligence component of Angarda Shikona, which is Ireland's National Police and Security Service. Michael joined in 1991 and has made his way to the highest levels of the organisation as Assistant Commissioner. He has a first-class honours degree in police leadership from University College Dublin, and he is also a graduate of the FBI National Academy here in the States and the UK College of Policing. In this episode, Michael and I discuss intelligence on the island of Ireland, the Garda's role in the Troubles, the Garda's role in counter-terrorism, counterintelligence and counter-espionage, and the importance of the Garda's American, British and European partners. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Okay, uh, I'm so pleased to speak to you, Michael. Uh, It was a pleasure to meet you when you were over here in the States earlier this year. Um, So thanks ever so much for coming on the show. And I really look forward to speaking to you about Garda and Ireland and Irish intelligence. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm delighted to be here and um, great to get this opportunity to, um, to do this podcast with you. I think there will certainly be information of... Um, of relevance and interest, um, um, particularly to people in the US with Irish connections and Irish history. 
one of them is sitting right next to me just now. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's just let's just start at the top. So for a lot of our listeners that that aren't familiar, um, tell them what the Garda is. Tell them just a little bit about the Garda before we start digging into what you do and, and the intelligence functions of it. Sure, yeah. The the Garda Garda Shiakana actually is, is the full title and that's a Gaelic expression which means guardians of the peace. And um, we are the policing and security service of the Irish state, and that's defined in law. And so there's no other police service um, in the Republic of Ireland. Um, And then that um, security service, which is the department that I head up, internal service, um, is known as the Guard of National Crime Security and Intelligence Service. And I might talk a little bit about that in a moment. So the Guard of Shiakana as an organization and colloquially known in Ireland as the Guards, has um, celebrated its centenary last year. And during our 100 years, 89 members of the organization have been uh, killed in the execution of their duty um, on behalf of the Irish state. And some of those were by uh, terrorists associated with um, Northern Ireland-related terrorism, including groupings such as the um, Provisional IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army. And in terms of numbers, there are about 15,000 um, sworn officers in Angarda Shiakana and about 3,000 support staff. And then there's also 500 um, reserve officers um, who support. And so that's the whole um, the figures for the whole organization, if you like. And because it's a policing and security service, then the oversight mechanisms are slightly different. In terms of the wider policing organization, there's about 500 police stations across the state. Um, and that's a state of uh, 5 million people. So you can see from those figures, this is a um, very strong community focus in, in, in policing and therefore, by extension, um, uh, security service throughout the country, that strong uh, community policing focus. And that's sort of demonstrated in some of the um, public attitude surveys. So, for example, 83% of 18 to 24-year-olds are satisfied with um, policing in Ireland. 91% of all respondents in a, a survey of 7,500 people trust Angarda Shiakana. And then in terms of criminality and um, uh, behaviour, you know, in Ireland there were 69 homicides in 2022. So that gives people internationally sort of a context in terms of, of the criminality here. While I think uh, policing services worldwide may have taken somewhat of a battering in terms of public attitudes. Uh, it, it, in fact, went the other way for us uh, during that time. So, and when I say us, that is, again, because the security service and the Garda Shikana, we are, are, are the one the one agency. And then in terms of governance structure, there is a single commissioner responsible for the whole organization and both components of the organization. There's two deputy commissioners and a chief administrative officer. There's four regional assistant commissioners, so they take responsibility for geographical parts of the country. There's an assistant commissioner for serious and organised crime. There's one for community relations and roads policing. There's one in governance and accountability. And then there's there's me, and I am the head of the Garda National Crime Security and Intelligence Service, as I mentioned earlier on. Last but definitely not least. I, I would hope not, anyway. But we work <laughs> together pretty collaboratively. <laughs> and And just before we go any further, just a couple of follow-up questions. So... You mentioned the commissioner there, and I find the current commissioner 
just historically quite interesting. Um, so for our listeners, his father was murdered by the IRA in 1989, I think it was. Uh, the current commissioner, Drew Harris, he was an RUC officer who went on to become the deputy head of the police service Northern Ireland. So the Garda commissioners that have came before him are a little bit different. And I'm sure that none of this is lost on people uh, in the Garda Shikona and, and, and on you. So I just wondered if you could tell our listeners what's going on there. They, they might be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's unusual. Yeah. Well, you're, you're quite correct. Drew Harris is, is our commissioner and he has been the commissioner for five years, almost five years now. And um, his uh, tenure has been extended by another two years. So he, he will do two further years with us. And um, you're quite right. He comes from Northern Ireland. Um, his dad was blown up by an IRA bomb and he has served in the Royal Ulster Constabulary uh, which then uh, subsequently was assimilated into the police service of Northern Ireland after the, um, the various initiatives under the, the peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, there had then, I think, up prior to his arrival down here, been a, a period of complaints and um, reviews and some um, independent examinations of policing here. And I think... At that point, uh, an open competition was run for the, um, the position of guard, the commissioner, and the policing authority who assisted government in running that competition went internationally to look at candidates um, for the posting. And I think there might have been a shortlist of about three candidates, um, I think all of whom were actually international at that stage. Um, and um, then the commissioner, Drew Harris, was the, the successful candidate. So he comes from... Um, you know, the vast majority of people in the Republic of Ireland come from a nationalist uh, Catholic uh, background, uh, whereas the commissioner comes from a Protestant uh, background in Northern Ireland. Um, but while that might have been something of relevance at one time, less the case now, um, you know, in, in the modern era, he brings a lot of rich experience in policing and in fact served for some time in Police Scotland as well. So there's a huge experience um, in that international context. Yeah, I just think it's, it's an interesting story. And in terms of within Ireland, it's broken down into four regions. There's the Dublin metropolitan region, eastern, southern and northwestern. And then, as you mentioned, there's, there's a commissioner that oversees this. So I, I was just wondering as well, what's the onboarding process like for Garda officers? You know, is there like a standard training? Does everybody have to be a Bobby on the beat? Does everybody have to join up, do the same training, spend some time on the street, and then you can specialize in intelligence or counterintelligence or any of the other um, branches that you spoke about? Just help me understand how that works. Yeah. The, um, in fact, we currently have a recruiting program uh, ongoing for a thousand officers. So it it, um, it very much, as as you've indicated, everybody joins at, at um, what we call Garda level. So that's constable or officer level. Um, they go through a training program, which is a degree program um, run over a couple of years. And that involves some modules where they are out in training stations and then return to the, the central training college, uh, which is in um, County Tipperary. And then after a period of time on frontline policing, individuals then become qualified to apply for positions in specialized roles. So we, for example, in 
the Garda National Crime Security and Intelligence Service, we would recruit primarily from the wider policing organization. So we advertise internally and then we look um, to select candidates. In addition, we take candidates a direct entrance into the security hub, um, particularly analysts or people with um, specialist language skills or etc. So, um, but there, we have a strong blend um, with, with a heavy focus on people coming from the policing community uh, folks background and then people make their way through the ranks um, so we all join at the same level and you work way, your way up through the ranks in recent years um, some of the senior positions from chief superintendent assistant commissioner there have been um, the competitions have been open to members of the police service of northern ireland as well and so we have some um, colleagues here who um, have spent their careers policing in Northern Ireland. But in, in each case, they also have had um, full careers in policing, so they're not lateral entrants, if you like, um, into the positions. But at the, ex at the senior leadership level of the organization, we do have um, what we call Garda staff or senior civilian colleagues at um, executive director level in around um, HR, um, legal, our, our chief medical officer, uh, and others, director of communications um, and uh, strategic transformation. So there is a blend at that level. The other thing is, I guess it's useful for an American audience in particular to be mindful of that our officers are generally unarmed. So the, the officers on the street are, are unarmed by and large. Uh, detectives can carry firearms and we also have a... a um, an armed support resource and capacity, which actually is also under my remit, and that's deployed um, nationwide. They are in a slightly different uniform to the regular officers. They drive different vehicles, and so they're identifiable as, as armed officers, and they carry MP7s and um, sidearms and have other uh, capacity around uh, 40 mil launchers and um, tasers. So that blend. And then finally, we also have a very specialist, and I was going to mention them later, our emergency response unit, which also is under my remit. So that's the top tier intervention team, um, which is you know relatively small capacity by international standards, but that's also there um, for um, particular areas of concern and interventions where the risks are particularly high. And for the uh, recruitment of the thousand officers, do you have to be an Irish national or, or can people from Northern Ireland also join or people from the UK? Or um, I think Erin was getting quite excited when you mentioned that there. Could Irish Americans join? Is it like the Irish football team or do you have to have been born there? Uh, no, no, we're, we're quite open. Um, in fact, our recent recruitment campaign has... Um, been altered slightly to allow people who are, are in Ireland on international protection, in other words, people who are here in this country as refugees, may apply uh, to join uh, Garda Síochána. Um, now, obviously, vetting becomes a little more complicated depending on the countries that people come from. And I think we have about um, 30 different nationalities represented in, in the organization. Um, there is, of course, enhanced vetting requirements before you move into some of the specialist roles, including the roles under my remit. And sometimes so from, for people who come from uh, countries where there may not be particularly stable governments, that vetting process can be challenging and um, uh, that can pose a difficulty. So just going on to uh, yourself now, how did you end up overseeing all of these intelligence components that 
So, so you join up as a constable. I guess that you've rotated around a few different things or or was it more you found that you had an aptitude or a liking for the intelligence stuff so you stayed in a particular stream? How does that work? How does one end up doing what you're doing compared to just doing more straightforward domestic crime and so forth? Yeah, well, I've 32 years um, service in the organisation now and I've had roles in, on both the policing side and on the uh, security service side of the um, of the coin, uh, and you know I've been fortunate enough to work in our criminal assets bureau, which is a, a bureau seizing assets from organised crime uh, figures. Um, I've worked in serious crime investigations um, over the years, uh, and also at various police stations. Almost all of them in Dublin. Uh, I haven't served outside of the Dublin metropolitan area to any great extent. Uh, and in fact, I was a chief superintendent, which is sort of the senior operational manager in Dublin city centre for about two years um, throughout COVID and to the end of COVID before I, I was promoted um, to assistant commissioner. So in and out, if you like, um, generally speaking, um, the people in the uh, security and service, uh, security and intelligence side hold detective appointments. And on promotion from a detective appointment, our general rule is you must go back for a while into frontline uniform policing. And that's designed to sort of share experiences, um, but also to help people develop as they go along. So I had been involved in, in crime investigations and the Criminal Assets Bureau when I was promoted to a sergeant back in the around 2004, I think, um, and I really was looking for a new path or something uh, different. Um, the um, security and intelligence department at that time tended to be exceptionally secretive. Uh, and it was pretty opaque uh, in terms of how you applied or how you entered or even what they did. Uh, and so when I was asked by a senior officer if I would have an interest in working in the area, I really had to ask, well, what precisely is it that they do and what would be required of me and et cetera, how, how I might be a fit for it. And when I came in first, um, I was I led a team um, dealing uh, with intelligence around Northern Ireland related terrorism. And that was sort of my early, uh, and that at that time was sort of busy business area because it was... Um, the Good Friday Agreement had happened, uh, but a number of um, fractious um, dissident groups um, that had broken away from the IRA were active. And um, it was certainly, the, the focus was on those groups. So that was a, an interesting dynamic time. And so to answer your, your question in a roundabout way, I suppose I, I found myself developing a, a level of interest uh, and intrigue in, in what is a very different world from that of policing. It's, it's closer in many respects to diplomacy. Uh, it is, um, you know, very analytical. It is slow burning um, in terms particularly of um, hostile intelligence behavior. Um, the Northern Ireland related um, terrorist activity tended to be dynamic, faster moving, uh, and certainly was more exciting and closer to investigating organized crime. And then the um, the the counter the general international counter terrorist stuff, you know, around support activity, fundraising, assisting people in travel, um, you know, that wider procurement, slower burning stuff, money laundering, and and that really 
put a lot of focus into collaboration with partner services, sharing of information, collective development, um, and looking at strategies around trying to prevent um, radicalization, etc. Help me understand, as you look at the world now, what are the intelligence components of Angarda, Shikona? Help our listeners understand the different things that are going on, counter-espionage, counter-terrorism, counter-intelligence, clandestine activity, some of the other constituent parts you mentioned, the National Surveillance Unit. So we don't need to go at that all at once, but just at the top level, what, what are the intelligence components uh, for, that, you're, that are under your remit? Yeah, well, there, there's four divisions essentially uh, operating under my um, um, sort of business area. Um, we have the Special Detective Unit, more commonly known as the Special Branch, and that operates under a detective chief superintendent. So they are, if you like, the law enforcement, the investigative side of um, of national security. So um, they are the ones who will the, do the interventions, the arrests, the detentions, bring the matters before the court. And then they, they also have departments then dedicated to the different investigations in the different threat areas. So, you know, be that um, counterterrorism um, or counterintelligence uh, or terrorism specifically related to Northern Ireland are in that department. Then the security and intelligence um, department, that's under, again, a, a second detective chief superintendent. So that essentially is the, the intelligence uh, unit, ring-fenced sort of uh, secure department within um, headquarters um, facility. Um, you know, that recruitment is from the wider policing organization with some specialist uh, support in terms of languages, technology, uh, analytics, and that sort of thing. And that's the branch of Angarda Shikona then that uh, partners with security services internationally. So that might be bilaterally or multilateral platforms at the European level. And then, you know, externally, the, um, for example, the UK is outside of Europe now, but we've you know, an exceptionally strong bilateral arrangement and engagements with um, with the UK and uh, and then also in the, in the United States. So you know, MI5 in the UK, in the US, um, the FBI, but also the Central Intelligence Agency and other state um, agencies as well in the US, depending on what the particular intelligence channel might be. And that unit is also the home to our national surveillance units. So um, they take over that um, um, uh, human and technical surveillance activity. And they're responsible then for that general intelligence cycle that would be well understood um, by people in the intelligence business. So, you know, that tasking or targeting and gathering of information from CHIS, technical surveillance or international partnerships. So that sharing, uh, which is more and more important now as the, in a globalized world. The uh, third area um, the division under my remit then is our Special Tactics and Operation Command. Again, there's a detective chief superintendent in charge of that. And that is our specialist firearms um, intervention. It also has our national negotiator units, um, the emergency response unit, which is top tier intervention team with all of those specialist intervention skills that you, you would expect, as was the case in the recent visit of President Biden. It's, that is the team that would work closely with the Secret Service in terms of providing the, um, the, those high-level VIPs with protection while they're, while they're in the state. Uh, we also then have a liaison and protection division um, that's under a detective chief superintendent as well. 
And that has sort of that uh, G-tag sort of, so that's the tactical assessment um, on security. So they're looking at security standards. Um, our major emergency management department, protective services, international liaison is under that department as well. So that would include our Europol and Interpol national offices. So in summary, that's the, the various um, departments. Michael just mentioned Interpol. But what is it? If you're lucky, you may have heard of the famous red notices that they issue or recall the term from some movie or newspaper that you watched in the past. Interpol was founded in 1923 and is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Interpol is short for International Criminal Police Organisation. Essentially, it facilitates international police cooperation and the exchange of information. For example, you have a precious work of art, a Rembrandt, that just so happens to be hanging above grandma's ashes on the mantelpiece. But it gets stolen. The chances are pretty strong that it will end up in a different country. That's okay, because Interpol has a global stolen art database that law enforcement in your own country, or any other country really, can access. In fact, almost every country in the world is a member of Interpol. On its centenary, Interpol helped take down an international art trafficking operation which led to over 60 arrests and the recovery of over 11,000 cultural objects. Some of the objects recovered were 77 ancient books in Italy that had been stolen from a monastery, over 3,000 ancient coins seized from an online sales platform by Polish police, and dozens of religious artefacts linked to a series of church robberies in Portugal. No less than 14 countries' law enforcement organisations were involved in this enterprise. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com resilience. And is there like a CIA MI6 component to Angarda Shikona? So foreign intelligence gathering, recruiting agents and overseas capitals and so forth? No, we, we're, we are, you know, in law, the policing and security service uh, and the the security activities uh, or security services activities are actually defined in legislation. And those are principally internal security in focus. So uh, it clearly is the intention of government that we are an internally focused um, service. So, you know, we that focuses in around protecting the state from, you know, acts of terrorism within the state, but also acts of um, espionage, sabotage, behavior that would undermine the um, the financial well-being of the state. So they are all principally internally focused. 
the national structure in terms of ultimately, as within any other country, national security rests with um, government. It is a government responsibility. And in Ireland, um, there is a department um, recently established in relatively recent years under the Taoiseach or Prime Minister's office, uh, and that's the National Security Assessment Centre. So the various actors of state, be that the um, military uh, who have an intelligence component, the various departments of foreign affairs, the cyber, National Cyber Security Centre, or ourselves in the Garda National Crime Security and Intelligence Service, we collaborate under the um, strategic direction of that office. So, uh, so Ireland doesn't have a separate foreign intelligence gathering agency? No, we don't, but, but the military do have an intelligence component which will be more externally focused um, and particularly in around areas where um, where military people or, or Irish interests are, are deployed. What's the report structure like? So in the States you have the the CIA, you know, central quote-unquote intelligence, they centralise it and then there's a presidential daily briefer every day the president will get a brief on things that are happening around the country, around the world. Like, how does the information get to the Taoiseach? Do you report to the commissioner or is it someone within your team that goes every day over to the Taoiseach or you? Or, yeah, just help me understand the flow of information. Yeah, well, the, the, on the operational side, essentially the commissioner has responsibility and um, so our reports are to him on operational activity. And then on strategic matters or operational matters that are going to be of, uh, of uh, concern sort of nationally, um, there are briefings to the minister. And so those principally are done by the commissioner. I will accompany him to to those meetings um, uh, or they're also done at a senior official level. So there's designated senior officials within the Department of Justice with whom we engage um, on the very secure channels to give those briefings. So those are, you know, there, there's contact daily, I guess, but um, more formalized briefings tend to... Um, um, relate to any particular threat that might be emerging or any particular matters of concern. So there are some that are um, set in the diary, if you like, but then they may well be more frequent if there's a particular matter of concern uh, ongoing. You mentioned that in the business area of uh, Northern Ireland and, and the, the, the troubles that that takes up quite a you know a bit of a bit of time and a bit of resources. Um, can you just help our listeners understand that a little bit more? So does that mean that there's there's particular parts of Angarda uh, Shikona that are around the border region or that are collaborating with PSNI to to deal with the issues that are going on there? Or help our listeners just understand that just a, a little bit more, the parts of your uh, branch that are focused on that relationship? Yeah. Well, the, the, on the policing side, um, there is very strong cross-border connections. And, and for some time before I came into this role as an assistant commissioner, uh, I was um, responsible for that border area. And so there are engagements then with counterparts in the PSNI on the policing side at strategic, tactical and operational level. And these are happening sort of every day at the operational level. Um, and, you know, there's joint initiatives around checkpoints um, so that they are um, done in partnership and that there's an effective operational sharing of information again on the policing side. 
And then on the intelligence side, the one of my uh, business areas, that security and intelligence area, engage with MI5. And they are sharing that information, that um, intelligence. Again, that's daily meetings are very, very regular. Um, that That is a relationship that has got stronger and stronger in my time here. And, um, you know, there's a lot of very good support there. So... Um, so you can have intelligence material shared. You can have joint strategies around, um, you know, who we collectively believe uh, might be um, individuals or groupings who pose a threat to that security environment and um, to um, jointly sort of target those groups and those individuals. So, um, you know, there's a number of them. Um, they're, they're still active. So the, there's one grouping um, which uses the term Oglenahern, um, which... Um, is unhelpful because that is actually the official title of the Irish Defence Forces, um, but it is used by one of these IRA groupings. And there's another one then, the new IRA, um, another called the or so-called real IRA, and um, and then to a lesser extent, the Irish National Liberation Army, which was at one time uh, a more significant player, um, and then some other uh, smaller uh, factions, um, so there's there's one you know called Armna Fublicta, which is another uh, a smaller grouping. All of those are groupings that are hostile to the um, Good Friday Agreement process. They all have their origins in in a split, really, at the um, the ruling Army Council of the Provisional IRA at the time of the um, strategy. Once that decision was made to go down that road, that led to um, uh, splits. And uh, those groups uh, then emerged um, principally from splits within themselves in the years that have followed. And, you know, in terms of examples, um, one of those groupings that are referred to as far back as um, 2010, in the wintertime, I can recall it because there was quite a bit of snow in the border area. Um, we had an intelligence intervention um, with our um, that national unit, the emergency response unit which um, stopped a car and um, made some arrests and seized a, an improvised mortar. And what was, I guess, most significant about this, it was very close proximity to the border. This mortar was of a new type that we hadn't seen before. And it, it used airbag canisters from a, um, um, a Volkswagen car as sort of, you like, the, the propulsion that would drive the warhead out of the mortar tube. And the, um, so we, we knew we had a difficulty in that this was a, a new design that we hadn't seen before, and it clearly was in the context of a transfer from the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland, which suggested there was engineering capacity in the Republic of Ireland. And so and that, uh, while an operational success, uh, was a worry. And um, a lot of very deep analysis um, review of metadata, applying you know very modern analytics, and then identifying a, a group of individuals and a, an intense period of surveillance um, continued um, for the best part of of um, you know sort of nine months after that event, and then there was a series of searches, um, principally in the south of um, Ireland, the south part of the Republic of Ireland, if you know what I mean. A number of arrests made there, uh, and during those um, searches and arrests, 
and we discovered schematic design for this Mark, what we titled Mark 21 mortar. That whole network uh, was disrupted in, in this series of arrests. And there was um, one significant conviction associated with this. And you mentioned earlier that a uh, hundred or over a hundred Garda um, officers had died in the in the century uh, that the Garda has been around, and and you mentioned that some of them were um, killed by the IRA. For our listeners, have Garda officers been? targeted by you know loyalist terrorists or, or republican terrorists or both or or the ones that have died has it been like killed the officers but they were you know quote-unquote collateral damage they weren't the intended target yeah just help us understand the officers who've fallen how they intersect with you know republican and and loyalist uh, terrorist groups uh, we haven't any experience of loyalist groupings um targeting um Garda officers, but then they have not been operationally active in this jurisdiction other than a couple of bombing incidents and they were quite controversial and they are well back in the years. So um, we haven't seen that um, behavior. The provisional IRA um, was a, you know, disciplined organization, if you can use that term in respect of a terrorist outfit, and it operated to what they call the Green Book and the Green Book principally prohibited them from engaging um, uh, Gardaí or members of the Irish military as targets. Now, there was a rationale behind that, of course, because the IRA in its early days and its inception uh, when it emerged in 1969 was relying on public support in its behavior. And they were mindful, of course, that um, the Irish public had a good relationship with its police force. So they knew that the targeting of members of the Gardaí or the Irish Defence Forces was likely to be counterproductive in terms of um, their their public support. And I think the same thing could be said true that they were keen to avoid mass casualty types event because they knew that whatever support they might get from misguided individuals who might support the the, um, the murder of a police officer or a soldier in Northern Ireland uh, as abhorrent and all of that might be to any of the rest of us. Some individuals might support that. But if that were to become a mass attack in which women and children and non-combatants were, were to be killed, they knew that that public support would evaporate and evaporate fast. Uh, and ultimately, that is really the way things have played out for some of these dissident groupings as well, particularly in the light of the attack in, in Oma in 1998. But so that doesn't mean the provisional IRA didn't kill members of Angarda Shikana. They did. Um, um, but it, it could happen in the context of fundraising activities here. So they were robbing post offices and banks and um, Angarda responded to those incidents uh, in, in the context of kidnappings um, where um, Gardaí were involved in searches to try and, and release individuals from their captors, um, so indiscriminate firing in the general direction, uh, and um, Gardaí and indeed members of the Defence Forces uh, were killed in that context. Then the dissident uh, groupings do not um, enjoy any particular level of um, structured, um, disciplined approach to their behaviour and tend to be um, have greater autonomy in, in how they uh, conduct their business. 
that said, they they are also less sophisticated in terms of um, their approach and strategies and that a lot of the people with the experience from the provisional IRA, be that engineering or in the operational um, field, um, they supported the the peace uh, uh, approach uh, and many of those who went down the road of dissent or these so-called dissident Republican groupings um, were not, in many cases, those who had that background experience and in some, they tended to be younger volunteers. There were some notable exceptions. There were some individuals who were quite experienced. I just want to talk a little bit more about foreign in the sense of from uh, different islands uh, other than the British or the island of Ireland. So here in the States, we're always reading stories about Chinese uh, industrial espionage, uh, Russian, you know, intelligence officers uh, active in Washington, D.C., you know, obviously with the diplomats in any capital city, you have people who are really diplomats and people who are posing as diplomats, but who are really intelligence officers trying to gather intelligence for their home country. So I just wondered if you could, like, just talk us through some of those things that you're dealing with. So domestic counter-espionage, counter-intelligence against foreign adversaries or, or let's not use the term adversaries, just people that are trying to take information that the Irish government and the Irish people don't want them to take. What's the threat landscape like for, for your branch, uh, Michael? Yeah, well, look, it's no surprise that we're, um, we're not unique. We don't stand alone, um, that those... Um uh, you know, malign threat actors exist in all countries and, um, you know, they exist here in the same way uh, that they, they do elsewhere. And as you've said, sometimes under diplomatic cover, but not always. Um, um, and it's those who operate with uh, that malign intent are the ones that naturally we are interested in. And, you know, given the, the international nature of that threat, that is a very obvious area of collaboration with um, allied services and um, and uh, countries uh, in, in that it is really is a sort of shared a shared risk and a shared threat but then potentially depending on where they're from they have an interest in in industry and um, you know that um, espionage around industry um, which is is a concern because ultimately that is something that impacts on the financial well-being of a state and that is something and um, that uh, must also be the focus of our, our of our business and in many cases it's 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 subtle behavior they they seek to build up uh, relationships at the diplomatic business commercial um, local government um, or national government and and when those relationships are developed then to seek to influence to gain access um and to continue from there and then this whole area is very closely aligned to um cyber um security activities and threats that are, again are associated with um uh, malign governments it's it's an interesting area of business in that it is of course so closely uh, associated with diplomatic relations of a state, and um, and therefore it's not always a comfortable area to speak about publicly. Um, so I tend not to to name the countries of concern, um, but it, it's an area of focus, it's an area of business, and it's a growing area of business. Um, but 
in many respects, it, it is very different in that the threat posed plays out very differently in terms of time, in terms of scale, in terms of behavior. So, you know, it's not as if we're looking at um, acts of violence in this jurisdiction or, or threats of violence. Um, it, it's, it's very different to that. When you started doing this, you know, joining as a, a becoming a constable and then moving over to this world, was there was there anything that was really surprising to you, or or were things as you kind of expected them to be, albeit just a little bit different in real life, or was it like holy smoke? I actually didn't really realize all this stuff was going on underneath the hood. Yeah, I think the latter, um, you know, um, and even though when I came in here, I was a relatively experienced um, detective and had been um, for a number of years um, before I moved into this world. So I think I was probably surprised at, um, you know, some of the collection methodologies that were available, uh, you know, some of those international engagements to find yourself you know, quite quickly sent abroad to meetings and, you know, to find yourself in sort of iconic buildings and think, you know, I, I really didn't think this place existed. Like outside. the Spy Museum? <laughs> well, like the uh, Spy Museum. Um, the, um, you know, to find yourself at these places that I didn't think really existed outside of movies uh, sometimes, but they very much did. And, um, you know, to become um, part of the discussion and considerations around you know, plotting for, you know, ultimately what we're sort of you're monitoring the plotting into things that were, were quite outrageous and, and uh, you know, to think that most of the world goes by and doesn't know these things are happening and are better off not knowing it um, because many of them are sort of false flags. They they don't emerge as real threats, um, um, but other things certainly do. And, um, you know, I think people should in general take comfort from the work that is done by intelligence services and the exceptional collaboration that there is with these services to keep people safe. Uh, and that is not just at home, that's abroad. Um, that, uh, you know, where we come into possession of a piece of intelligence that we feel um, will be a value elsewhere, we'll share that elsewhere because ultimately we're mindful of the threat that elsewhere might be. To help you digest this episode, here's a 60-second snippet on some of Angarda Shikona's backstory. The Irish War of Independence began in 1919 and came to a conclusion with the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921, which provided for the establishment of an Irish Free State. This was quickly followed by the Irish Civil War, with pro- and anti-treaty sides fighting from 1922 to 1923. The Royal Irish Constabulary was the police force in Ireland up to this time, but it was disbanded and eventually replaced by Angarda Shikona. The Dublin Metropolitan Police, a separate entity which oversaw policing in the capital city, would likewise be incorporated into Angarda Shikona to constitute the force we see today. If you want to learn about a fascinating spy from this period, look into the life of Eamon Ned Broy. He served in the Dublin Metropolitan Police and would secret files out to the Director of Intelligence for the IRA, Michael Collins. He would actually go on to become Angarda Shikona's commissioner from 1933 until 1938. I was just wondering, does the Irish diaspora ever figure into 
your operations, your um, investigations and so forth or, or, or not really? Well, traditionally they certainly did in the area of Northern Ireland-related behaviour and um, that could be seen, you know, regrettably on occasions in the United States um, where part of the Irish diaspora who might have been involved in, in donations and fundraising may not have fully understood or um, appreciated, you know, the actual feeling on the ground in Ireland about some of the groupings that uh, they sought to support. Um, so, you know, we were talking about groupings, um, for example, with these various dissident groups. They do not have between them all a single elected representative, even in a local government, even in a county council. So they have no political support uh, and they have no support from the public. And that was demonstrated in the huge numbers that voted in favour of the Good Friday Agreement in North and South of Ireland. Um, so, but that is pretty much um, uh, disappearing now as an issue. It certainly was an issue uh, during the Pyra campaign. It continued for a time um, for some of these other uh, so-called dissident groupings, but we certainly see less of it now. But that's been the principal area that we have seen it in, in my time here. Do you find it gratifying? Are you, are you enjoying the position? I, I, I am and I always have. Um, but I say to new entrants who come into this particular business area that um, you have to be a sort of internally motivated person um, because you will see the successes playing out operationally. So when the special branch bring the case before the court, when the emergency response unit do the hard stop and make the arrests, your role as an intelligence officer will never be identified. Your critical role in finding the little nugget that started this process going to that intervention, um, that media spotlight. Uh, so when everybody goes to the bar the night of that conviction or that big operational success, you won't be invited because none of those people involved in that intervention even know what your role was in the operation. So that takes quite a different personality, a different um, way of viewing the world. So um, you have to be a person who can, you know, take your satisfaction from knowing yourself the important role that you played in something that may well have become public, but your role in it certainly won't. Are there any stories that have came out that you're able to talk about that have that fall within the, the remit of your branch? There's one, uh, it, it goes back to the time that Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth, um, traveled to Ireland in, in 2011. There were some intelligence indications of efforts that might be made to disrupt that visit. A um, few of them played out. There was two or three which we managed to disrupt. Um, but one sort of blindsided us um, on the, the evening before the Queen was due uh, to arrive here in May uh, 2011. There was a phone call to a police station in County Longford in, in um, the middle of the country, which indicated that bombs had been placed at, um, uh, on a bus that was going from the west of Ireland to Dublin at uh, Sinn Féin's head office in Dublin at, at Bus Aris, which is a central bus station in Dublin. And as you would expect, that led to a series of searches, etc. Um, and nothing was recovered at the physical locations. But... The bus between um, Ballina, which is in County Mayo in Dublin, was stopped out on the outskirts of Dublin, a place called Maynooth. And during a search of the baggage area, 
an improvised explosive device was discovered on the bus. And this was a bus with a number of passengers on it. So um, our colleagues in the military assisted with um, an ordnance, explosive ordnance team to disrupt the device. But subsequent uh, analysis indicated that it was a viable blast incendiary device. Um, and so you can imagine if that had detonated the day before the Queen's um, visit, um, the implications that would have had. Uh, and of course, when that turned out to be sort of, if you like, a valid um, threat, a series of searches had to conduct and be redone uh, throughout the night in terms of, of the wider security. So um, our department were deployed at that stage um, to do some work, uh, to try and, and work backwards to see what we could do. So needless to say, the point of key interest was the phone call. Uh, and uh, we discovered um, that um, it was made from a, 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 a burner uh, phone. But closer analysis of the SIM card did demonstrate that it had been used or associated with a phone uh, in the United Kingdom previously. And um, we, in real time, dealt with our colleagues in uh, the security services in the north uh, who um, were working on trying to establish the ownership of that phone. But something else we discovered was a top-up on the, on this, on the uh, SIM card. And um, we recovered the CCTV of the location where that happened in the vicinity and identified an individual on that footage. Uh, and subsequently, it then also appeared that that individual was likely to be an associate with the Northern Ireland phone that historically had been associated with the SIM card. So that threw up a personality to us um, of, of interest. And um, we decided to intensify surveillance around him um, to look at opportunities. And um, on the night of the 20th of May, the Queen was present in Ireland and she was uh, there was a banquet, a state banquet at um, Dublin Castle, which was famous in that the Queen uh, made some... Um, opening remarks in Irish and uh, that uh, was something that was um, of international interest and uh, of huge interest here in Ireland. But at around the time that happened, the target who was under surveillance um, made a further phone call to the um, same police station to indicate now that there was a, a further bomb in Dublin Castle. But at this point in time, he was under active and live surveillance and was arrested by uh, a surveillance team. Uh, and in a follow-up search, then a firearm was recovered in his home. So he was a guy called uh, Donald Billings, um, and he was subsequently convicted um, of um, possession of explosives, making false report, and sentenced to eight and a half years um, in prison uh, before our special criminal court. You know, that's sort of a kind of a topical case at one moment in time. Um, it became topical here in Ireland again recently because there was a, a documentary program about it. I was just wondering, what does the future hold for you, Michael? Is this seen as a like a final position before you leave? Or is this seen as when Drew Harris leaves, uh, you may throw your hat in the ring and uh, maybe you'll come back on the show as the commissioner in a few years? Or, or you, uh, do you already have your sl your slippers bought and your pipe looked out and you're ready to, <laughs> to down tools? Yeah, what what does the future hold for you? Well, um, you wait for this for a diplomatic answer, but I guess I, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just in this role since, since February, despite a lot of history. 
uh, in this world in, in various departments. So this is the chance at sort of heading it up, if you like. Um, I see some great opportunities for some development here um, of this of this area. So that's what I'd like to focus on. I can serve on until I'm 60, so that gives me uh, you know a number of more years. That's exciting. You're, you've been in the job since February, so I'm guessing you're probably just now getting your head around it all and you're ready to start making the changes you want to make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And look, there's plenty there. I'm not in the world of changing things for the sake of it. Um, plenty works very sure. well, but uh, I think there are um, some changes that we can with the various managers and the teams that work on them um, find better ways of doing things too and um, be open to new opportunities and new technologies and uh, that's the exciting part of this world too well thanks ever so much this has been really great Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show thank you thanks for listening to this episode of Spycast please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.